and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I am Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guests, I will mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today, I am here with Doctor of Psychology, Olympian and homegrown Adelaidean Amber Halliday. Amber and I chat about her elite sporting career, first in rowing, where she represented Australia twice in the Olympics, and then in cycling. In 2011, Amber suffered a tragic cycling accident, which left her with severe traumatic brain injury. We talk about how she recovered from this, not least of which was having to adapt her identity as a sports person. Fast forward to today and Amber's recently set up an online coaching business for women in sport called She Thrives in Sport. So it's my great pleasure to chat with Amber Halliday today. Hi Amber, welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure and Amber I'd like to start by chatting a bit about your sporting career. You were an elite rower, so when did you start rowing and what drew you towards it? you want the barefaced truth is that I was pretty crappy at at tennis at school like seriously that that is what um that is sort of the reason why I went to rowing as a school sport um a few of the the popular girls were doing it and um and I quite liked the idea of being a coxswain I was a smaller girl so I started mm-hmm. started out as a coxswain and I quite liked the idea of bossing around those popular girls so, <laughs> and I was hopeless at tennis so I had no hand-eye ball coordination very typical of a rower um yeah and I also what what drew me a little bit towards the sport is that my dad was a rower um, at I at wondered school. about yeah. that. Yeah. So mm. um, I don't like to, I don't actually attribute it that much to him, but I, I feel like I went to rowing and I felt at home. What kind of boat did you start rowing in? Well, I mean, we started off at school in, um, like I said, I was the coxswain, so we had a quad yep. skull and we were, we were in the quad scales when we were youngest and then we went to a four and then we got up into the eights, like the first eight and the second eight and and what have you. I was lucky enough to to go straight into the first eight and row with my sister. So that was oh, brilliant. That was cool. And um and then I had another year in the first eight. Um and then it was the tumultuous, <laughs> the dramatic challenge um, of going to rowing beyond school. So just before we talk about that, can you just explain to people who might not know what the different types of boats are? Yeah, sure. Well, I've, I think it's probably really confusing for an outsider. But in, in rowing, we have um, two types of rowing, I guess, sculling and sweep. And sculling is with um, an oar in each hand and so, so obviously the single skull is one person in a boat 
with an oar in each hand. And then you've got sweep rowing, which is one oar in both hands. And so the smallest boat there is the pair. It's a boat of two people, one oar each person, and that's the boat that goes right up to eights. But sculling, the biggest boat, is the quad skull. Right. Did you have a favourite at all or not? Well, really? of course my I mean, of course my favorite was the the double skull because that yeah. that's my Olympic boat. That's the only boat that um lightweights could make at the Olympics and I was a lightweight rower and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But um We will. Yeah. Beyond school, so once you get beyond school and beyond junior rowing, um, you get into lightweight and heavyweight categories. And so yeah, the, the only Olympic boat in lightweight is um, the double skull, and so that was my boat. Okay. Well, actually, now that we're talking about it, let's just let's just talk about lightweight for a woman rower. What is the weight cutoff? Well, it is um, okay. So you have fifty-seven crew average, with no person oh. allowed to be more than fifty-nine kilos. So if you oh, okay. if you can imagine a boat of two people, it's pretty easy. We'll, we'll go with the easier calculation, the, the double skull rather than the quad skull. But the double skull, like say, for example, if my, um, my crewmate is a little bit taller than me, she might mm-hmm. weigh in at 58 kilos and I will then have to weigh in at 56 kilos to get an average of 57 kilos. Right. And when did you weigh in before the race? How long before the race? Between two and one hours before the race. So, you, oh, right. Yeah, you had to be quite close. Like you had to sort of um, in, in the days leading up to, to your weigh in, you had to be within striking distance of, of that yeah. weight. Yeah. Was it easy for you to make that weight? Like did, was that kind of your physical, natural kind of weight or did you have to do some horrible sort of <laughs> hellish uh, saunas and things like that to achieve it? Uh, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> it was hard for yeah. me. Um, but do you know what? If it wasn't hard, then I probably wouldn't have reached the level that I did. Um, yep. because everyone at that level cuts it fine. Yes, it. I was definitely a lightweight that struggled, which was like sort of funny because I was on the, the shorter end. Um, but I guess it took me a few seasons to get to know myself and to get to know, you know, what what I craved eating and what um, what sort of diet worked for me and mm-hmm. how to, to shed weight responsibly and then how to just squeeze out the last little bit leading up to weigh in um uh, like in terms of I'm, I'm not sure if we should talk about this but because I don't want to um give the wrong impression or set a bad example but but everyone pretty much everyone in every in every weight restricted sport like they dehydrate themselves yeah. a little bit to yeah. to get down to weight because it is quite a um short-term and quite quite a big, you know, you can drop a kilo as a fifty-seven kilo girl or a fifty-eight kilo girl. You can drop a, you can dehydrate a kilo, and for a short for the short term, it's actually not that bad. Yeah, I know jockeys do <laughs> yeah. similar things. I think, as you say, in in weight dependent sports, it's pretty much common practice. I would say. Yeah, everyone's saying Rocky, right? You know. 
Yeah. <laughs> so if we go back to your rowing career, so after school you rowed at Adelaide Uni Boat Club. During that time you won numerous interstate quad skull races and for many of those races you were the stroke. Was, was that a coxless or a coxed boat? No, definitely coxless. There's not much that yeah. is coxed at the elite level. There's only the Yeah, eight, I'm really. sure. Yeah. So can you tell us then what, as, as the stroke, what were some of the responsibilities you had? Well, it, as you get like to a higher and higher level, I, I don't think this, I think the stroke's importance actually diminishes because, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes more of a shared responsibility between everyone in the boat, you know, to set the rhythm and, and everything. But, um, but really the stroke does set the rhythm and quite often in a coxless boat, they will have the steering foot, which yes. if, if you can imagine the, um, well, you would know about it, Amanda, but if your listeners listeners can imagine that um, the the rudder is attached with wires, and instead of a coxswain pulling the strings, it's attached to your foot plate, and you just move your foot left and right to to go to left and to to send the boat left and right. So, quite often the stroke is doing that. But um, to tell you the truth, I I enjoyed it much better when I was in a boat where it wasn't the stroke's responsibility to do that. I guess it's just an, another added pressure of something that could potentially but hopefully not go wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think they, um, they give it to the stroke because the stroke can see the stern of the boat, but I was yes. fine steering from bow or three or wherever I was. I was quite obsessed about steering, so that was my job okay. wherever I was. <laughs> okay, and then you went on to row in the World Rowing Championships and I think that it sounds like some of the locations were pretty spectacular. Oh, my gosh. Amanda, where, do you know where God rows? That is in a place called <laughs> Lucerne in Switzerland. Like it's, wow. it's got this beautiful lake which just happens to be about six lanes wide, which is a rowing course. Um, mm-hmm. Or two, and 2Ks long with a, just a little bit extra for warm-up and a little bit extra for cool-down and um, and it's set in a beautiful valley and so that's where God rose because it's so, it's perfect. It's a perfect course and it's naturally occurring. Oh, you're so lucky, aren't you, <laughs> to have seen some of those locations. Oh, they sound amazing. I'm so grateful, yeah. So during the uh, the World Rowing Championships, you had some notable successes. I'll just mention a few because there were many. In you made your debut, I think, in 1999, where oh, you won the hundred years ago, <laughs> <laughs> the under 23 World Champions in the lightweight double skull, and then you went on to win three gold medals in 2001 in a lightweight quad skull. And then again in 2002 in a lightweight double skull. And then for the third time in 2007, again in a lightweight double skull. In the 2001 race, I believe you set two world records. So that's amazing. Do you know if they still stand? Do you know what? I I think they actually got broken by the Australian crew the very next year. Um, Oh, really? It was a massive, uh, but... I have to say that in Lucerne that year that we um, won the world title in the world in the world's best time, that was absolutely flat. And then the next year in Seville, where the Australian crew um, 
of that year came along and broke it, um, that was a massive tailwind. So, you know, I just had to put that in there. And then you also rode for the, in the Olympics twice, 2004 in Athens and 2008 in Beijing. And before we touch on those races, I'd just love to know, what was it like being at the Olympics and representing Australia? Was it, was it like a dream come true? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was so surreal. It was, it's like going to the World Championships but on steroids because it, it yeah. was the Olympics and everyone was there. Everyone was, you know, having essentially their world championships, um, every, everyone all together. All at once. Yeah. So it was it was amazing. And at the world championships, you, you obviously don't get the same experiences that you do at the Olympics, like um, the, the Olympic Village and, oh, my gosh, yeah. the Olympic Dining Hall. Like that is incredible. They they call the Olympic Dining Hall the happiest place on earth. Open <laughs> open open for um what what is it? Twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for two weeks of the year, every four years. So um, wow. <laughs> so it's a pretty incredible place. And um, I mean the the Olympics are just in, an incredible experience. It must be so much fun. Once you've got your race done and all the nerves are gone, my son, who's 19, said, oh, oh, can you ask Amber about the <laughs> Olympic Village? I hear it's sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, it is. Um, and <clears throat> it's, it's really good fun because you, once you, I mean, once you do your competition and you wallow for a little bit, or at least I did, you wallow for a little bit, you know, in your, it's, it's so bittersweet. You have to balance like your, you know, if you didn't perform as well as you thought, maybe your disappointment, you have to balance that with your just experiencing things and yeah. lapping it up and being in the moment. And, um, yeah. and so it was, I mean, the whole second week of the games for rowers is fantastic because you, what you do in the morning, you sort of wake up and you go and you put your name down for all the events that you want to go see, you get your tickets and then you, you get into your, you go get your food and, um, it, you know, from the dining hall and then you get on the bus and you go, just go and see these top, the top class um, world wow. world class performances, you know, just just oh, every that day. Just sounds so amazing! Wow, you alluded to wallowing a bit. So let's talk about your races mm. in two thousand and four in Athens, in the double skull. You set the world's best time in the heat, and then you came fourth in the final. Mm. And then in two thousand and eight, again in the double skull you you came eighth Mm. and I did do a little bit of reading about those races and you said um, somewhere that your results did not match your potential so for example in Beijing you entered the regatta as the then current world champions Mm -hmm. but you didn't have a podium finish so that, that must have been pretty devastating so how did you come to terms with that and did you have any support like psychologists or anything like that? Um, well, yes, uh, athletes who are supported in Australia um, by state institutes, state and national institutes, they have really good support and especially nowadays, um, really good support. And so it was there if I wanted to access it. 
But mm-hmm. in terms of a systematic sort of debriefing in those days, that didn't happen. Um, and I still feel like there's a lot of stuff that is unprocessed mm-hmm. uh, from that. But but I feel like I found my own coping, coping mechanism at the time, and that was to go to cycling um, because, yeah. you know, I, I just transferred over sideways straight away into the cycling program at SASE, the South Australian Sports Institute. Um, they were pretty happy to have me. Um, I was you know, physically primed. I just um, had to pick up the skills and and whatnot of being a cyclist. Um, but I feel like I pedaled my way through my psychological recovery from from Beijing, uh, apart from oh, that unprocessed good. stuff. <laughs> just before we move on to cycling, I what one thing that I think is absolutely amazing about rowing, even if you're not an elite rower. Um, even at club level where I was, it is an all-encompassing sport and it's very time-consuming. I don't know if people appreciate how much rowers train. So can you just give us an overview of a typical week for you, like a sort of leading up to a competition before you're tapering or anything like that? Just what did it look like? It would look like always a a um, session on the water in the morning because where we trained in Adelaide, Australia, the, that was definitely the best water. First thing in the morning, um, the session would last, you know, 90, 90 minutes to two hours. We would do 16 to 20 Ks depending on the, the size of the boat. You know, mm-hmm. we as in we could be rowing singles that day or we could be in the double skull or quad skull or whatever. Um, and then... Uh, I would also usually ride my bike to training because I just I liked having that extra um, mileage in my legs, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, usually in the afternoon it would be a gym session and, like, I guess normal people would count this as three sessions in the afternoon, but we counted it as one. We went to the gym and my coach would set us a very hard ergo, like a uh, rowing machine. So we would do that for yeah. up to an hour and then we would go into the weights room and lift our weights for an hour, an hour and a half. And then we would go to the recovery centre and have our recovery session, which, you know, hot and cold water, spa bath and wow. sometimes massage and um, and that sort of thing. So that, that was pretty much the typical day most days we're um uh, on the water in the morning and most days we're in the gym in the afternoon right so in terms of time it, it must have taken up you know six hours or something of your day it, it was imagine. a full-time job it was 40 hours yeah. a week but because we got up at the crack like before the crack of dawn to be at the boat shed usually I, I think for most of my own career it was a quarter to six arrive at the boat shed and I think nowadays because the traffic is just slightly worse everyone arrives there at 5 30 um, and so you do get a lot of stuff done before most people are waking up and I think yeah. rowers are very proud of that as well. Yeah I agree. Um, do, where did you do most of this training? At West Lakes in Adelaide, we we were really lucky to have basically the national program for lightweight women was with my coach in Adelaide. I guess that's because of oh. because of us, because of my strong teammates, um, because of Adrian being the coach. Adrian was the 
coach for most of the time, Adrian David. Mm -hmm. And um, and so because of that, they allowed us to train the national program in Adelaide rather than in those days most of the national programs were in Canberra. Yes, I wondered about that. Well, you were lucky then because I assume that meant you could live at home. Yes, well, I lived, yeah. at, lived at home until, I mean, I thought I was pushing it in those days um, until, what was I, 25 and then, um, and then moved out and on but yeah. but yeah I could 24 be, and out the door yeah I could be with my um I could be close to my family and they could still provide a lot of support for me and apart from your coach did you have any other support throughout that period like uh dietitians or physiotherapists and things like that oh who said the coach was a support <laughs> uh, well, that's another story. I could do a whole nother podcast on him. But, um, but yes, uh, being part of the South Australian Sports Institute, we had access to nutritionists and to, um, to psychologists. And then we ended up getting a little bit of support to go see our um, physiotherapists because that was basically the biggest cost that we had as rowers mm. before we got su- financial support for that it was a huge cost and it probably um, meant that we were going backwards financially I mean well most of us were just uni students or yeah uh, couldn't really have a full-time job on top of a full-time job um, and so yeah, but we we ended. I think we ended up getting really good support, and I think the support now is really good. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, so we were starting to talk about cycling after Beijing. Mm. Uh, you cycled your way to recovery, and you trained at SASI, which is the South Australian Sports Institute. Uh, and I, you you alluded to this before. I think there is a very good crossover between rowing and cycling because those sports are quite dependent on your legs being very strong. Would you say that's a fair comment? That's true. And a lot of people don't understand that rowing really is a leg sport. Like, you know, you you get huge arms and that's pretty good, pretty cool. But um, but it, it is mainly about the legs. And so to go to cycling of course that's all about the legs you you already have the huge engine um Mm. you know the huge lung capacity the big vo2 max and so um yeah i think uh, i think they were really excited when i first came over because just recently at the time i think rebecca romero was she was a rower for the uk team and then she went to cycling and won a gold medal I think at wow. Beijing, or it could have been at Athens, but um, yeah, it was a pretty big success story. She went ac- across to um, uh, individual individual pursuit. Maybe it was maybe it was a gold medal. Maybe it was a world championship medal. I'm not sure, but um, but you know, a lot of the coaches in cycling were really interested in what I could do. Yeah, and I just sort of came o- over and realised that my engine was more of a a big diesel, so I did better in the the road time trials, which were normally yep. about like forty minutes, rather than mm-hmm. trying to condense. A, I mean, our rowing races were about seven minutes, and trying to condense that into a four minute individual pursuit. Rebecca Romero did that very well, but I went the other way and I expanded out to like a forty minute time trial on the road. 
And you actually achieved success pretty quickly when you crossed over from rowing to cycling. I know that in 2010, you won the Australian time trial, but the year before that, in 2009, you won the women's tour of New Zealand. Is that a bit like the tour down under? Is it a similar thing? Yeah, well, it's a it's a three-day event um, yeah. in New Zealand and, like, I, I just think not a lot of people knew me um, that year and so <laughs> they, they were quite, you know, whatever, this girl... Um, this girl's going on a breakaway. What? Well, you know, we'll just let her go, and she can't be that strong. And then it turns out I, I was. So, <laughs> so I love they, that they let her break go with the um, what ended up being the race winner in it, which was me. And um, and that was pretty cool. But I don't. That didn't happen again. <laughs> so, what were some of the things you enjoyed about cycling as a sport? I liked the freedom of it, um, especially coming from a sport like rowing where, you know, I felt like we had so much of our training that was monitored and just um, Mm. surveilled by our coach and barely, I barely did any strokes without him seeing them. And so my coach in cycling trusting me to do the Ks that were on the program myself yep. and to go out there and do it myself, that was great. So I, I did like that autonomy and that trust that I had from the cycling coaches. And um, and it, it's also social in a way that rowing can't yeah. be because you can you can um, be to a stride and you can chat to the person next to you and then you you know, you do a turn or whatever and you might end up chatting to someone else. But in rowing, you're looking at somebody's like the, somebody's ponytail or you're looking at yeah. the stern <laughs> for a lot of the time. And and um, and so it's it's only ever a quick chat at the end of um, a two or a 5K stretch, as you would know. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good point. In terms of you being given some autonomy with cycling, I think there are some pretty good ways to measure all the metrics now anyway. Like obviously you'd be wearing a heart rate monitor and mm. a power meter and a cadence sensor. So your coach could sit back after your ride and have a look to see what you've done too. So yes. And we definitely, we definitely had those, um, what were they called? The SRMs, I think the, um, on the bike where, I mean, we had all sorts of monitoring equipment on the boat and we could put additional things on when you're doing a biometric session mm-hmm. um, so they could, like, get the, the force curve of your stroke and all amazing things like that. And then on the bike, like, it was a little bit more compact, but they would um, put, like, a power meter in your crank yeah. and so they could gauge just how much power you're putting down and... Like I, I imagine that these days it would be integrated with um, a GPS sort of thing. Um, oh, I'm sure. I mean, even amateur cyclists have a lot of that gear now, I think. And then, unfortunately, in January 2011, disaster struck for you. You were in a racing accident at Victoria Park Racecourse in Adelaide. And from that, you suffered uh, severe traumatic brain injury and some broken bones. Just looking at you, clearly you've made a good recovery. So what were some of the important steps in your recovery and your rehabilitation? 
in terms of like the physical and cognitive steps in recovery, you know, in in their very early days, as soon as I um, they put me in an, an in an induced coma, and then mm-hmm. um, you know I was learning how to walk and talk. Oh my and, goodness! Um, and then once I sort of got a handle on on that, it was about like things like crossing roads, and they had to test me out to see whether I could cook things and sort of mm-hmm. combine like the the food preparation and cooking and everything wow. safely. Yeah, I remember doing that in the hospital kitchen. It was it was quite amazing. Uh, uh, but, you know, they, they have to make sure you're safe. And then, of course, um, you know, nine months later, I was good enough to take my driving test again. And so I was able to drive nine months after the accident. Um, wow. And so that was a big step. And... Um, and then I, th- I also think another big step in my physical recovery and mental recovery was getting back on the bike. And that took a little that bit. That must have been hard. Yeah, that took a little bit longer. But, um, but at the time I was actually coaching rowing and, um, and in Adelaide in West Lakes, the coaches ride bikes along the side of the, mm. the lake there. And so I really wanted to get back to riding because I was I was coaching and up until then I was just sort of watching them from the last 250 metres of the course and trying to um, make a positive impact in, in what I was saying. But it was the last session of, that they had, I was coaching schoolgirls, it was the last session that they had before Head of the River of that first season that I got back on the bike. Oh, you're almost bringing me to tears <laughs> listening to that. That must have been such a hard step to take sort of mentally to get back on a bike, even though it's in very different circumstances. Um, were, were your um, family and friends a bit nervous about that? Well, to tell you the truth, um, you know, it was a matter of my my now husband taking me and the bikes in the car to a deserted car park on, on a weekend mm-hmm. and um and we did a few practices on the on in the car park and then so that I was ready for that last session um at West Lakes but that was very nerve-wracking because you're right by I the bet. water and I was like oh my god yeah. <laughs> I hope I don't stack it and fall in that would just be so embarrassing <laughs> Yeah, because there's quite a few people around who would witness that. I know. Do, do you ride at all now or is that I, a part of your past? Or I do actually, like nothing like I used to. Um, but here in, uh, I'm based in Utah now um, and we have some of the best trail riding um, and oh, cool. amazing mountains and scenery here. And so I feel like sort of the outsider if I didn't get into mountain biking. So my husband has bought me a, a very, or we have bought me, he's been in charge of selecting a very nice um, mountain bike for me. And fantastic. Um, and it was great. I just went for a ride actually this afternoon and came up with some really good ideas. I was, I was like, oh, my gosh, I wonder whether we'll we'll get to that with Amanda Um do you want me to tell you one? Okay, okay. Yes, please do. Okay. So I, I, I'm on this amazing bike with this dual suspension and, you know, it's, it's really beyond my ability. But 
you know, I have, I feel like I have this good foundation of this solid bike beneath me and it, it allows me to do more things and take more risks and maybe go over bigger bumps and, you know, just get through some tricky sand and, and that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like, this is just like the the foundation of resilience that, that you know, I've heard you talk about and that I obviously study and I'm trying to do at the moment. You know, I really want a, a lot of people talk about um, having good roots in the ground and so mm-hmm. then your tree comes up the top and you can grow, grow the leaves and, and flourish and everything. But I like the bike analogy. I was like, yes, that yeah. is it. I, I have a really good bike beneath me and that allows me to do more. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent analogy. Going through sand, going over bumps, and all of that, and, and you can, you can do it, and you can keep on your your pathway. Yeah. Did your accident change your outlook on life? Yeah. Well, it it, I mean, it changed everything. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah, mm. it it changed. I mean, it, the biggest thing was that it changed my identity. I was an athlete, and then I wasn't. So what was I? And and it also took a while to um, to understand and accept it. Like it, it took a while to understand because I actually, when I had my accident, I didn't realise what a brain injury was or what it could do or, um, you know, people got, I didn't understand that you could get hit in the head and then be in a wheelchair. I just didn't, mm. I didn't know much about that. And I think there was some of that, you know, invincibility of, of not youth. It's not like I was young at the time, but, but um, a hangover from that invincibility of youth and, and being a capable athlete and invincible and. um, Yeah. And, and really strong and fit. Yeah. And, and all that changed. And it took me a while to understand that this wasn't going to be a six to eight week broken rib sort of, um, injury which is the the most common injury in rowing is probably a rib stress fracture and mm-hmm. that's quite form that's like a bad a bad injury is like a 6 to 8 week recovery and you know as i was coming out of the the fog of the early days of recovery of brain injury you know it, it took me a while to understand that i wouldn't be going back to rowing and I wouldn't be trying to make the team for the London Olympics and I wouldn't be, you know, like I I couldn't do the things that yeah. I, I used to do. Wow, that must have been really, really tough to come to terms with. Yeah, well, I, like I said, I was, in the, I was in the brain injury fog and so it, mm. it, it, didn't, it didn't come down on me like in one moment or all no. in one ton ton of bricks um, sort of moment, but eventually I came to understand it, and then eventually I came to accept it. You then studied uh, psychology. You're a doctor in psychology. Mm-hmm. Was that after your brain injury or before? No, it was after. After. It was, it so was after. I guess it's. It sounds a bit like that's part of your new identity yes. that you started to put together. Um, you'd studied quite a bit before that, I think, during your rowing career. But uh, in your 
PhD, I believe you were researching into the area of adolescent mental health mm. and well-being. Is that right? Yes. That's a remarkable recovery, isn't it, to go from having a brain injury to doing a PhD. <laughs> That's but, incredible. Uh, do you know what? That was part of the rationale behind it is that, um, you know, I, I I was actually working in the media at the time. I was a print journalist and I... I just knew that I like print journalism was going the way that it was and I probably mm. didn't have the profile or the the will to um, to make it in the media further. And so I thought I might return to my psychology studies and also kickstart my brain by throwing myself in at the deep end of um, of study. Like the, the first thing I had to do was to update my previous psychology degree so I did a psychology undergrad as soon as I came mm -hmm. out of school and um, you know ticked that box and went yeah okay and but then 10 years later it becomes out of date and, and so yes. I had to go back to do a grad dip which is basically doing it all again but instead of doing it over three years, you do it over one. One of the reasons that you wanted to study that to, was to have some more insight into your own brain and your own injury, or was it a separate thing? It, it definitely, um, I think it was a contributing factor. It wasn't everything. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think the, like I said, that one of the main things was kickstarting my brain again, and then you know, I'm trying like hell to get into honors because that was the the big um, test. And then mm -hmm. once I got into honors, um, like that was a huge achievement and just give, gave me so much confidence that my brain could work. Um, and also in honors, I started learning about you know, well-being and positive psychology and, um, you know, I just I felt like it related to, to my past experiences in sport so much. Oh, that's excellent. And now you've gone on and founded a business called She Thrives in Sport. It's tailored to female or women athletes, their coaches and their parents, and your aim is to assist them to build resilience, performance and well-being in sport. So when did you launch that? Well, <laughs> I think it's been a matter of weeks that we've been live. Wow. Yeah. It, um, you know, I started working on this um, online learning platform idea maybe last year and then I started sort of developing it this year and then the coronavirus hit and I was like, oh, yeah. oh my God, everyone, everyone's going online, everyone's doing online courses let's try and get mine live quickly and then I sort of have just got it live for, <laughs> for everyone to go back and be sick of um, online learning. But I think the whole reason behind it, you know, back last year when I was thinking about everything, I was thinking, you know, sport set me up for life. Yes, it did. I feel like sport gave me the the skills like the emotional skills the psychological skills um to get through my accident um and to get through life beyond that to do a phd to have a baby during my phd um <laughs> and to move continents here to the us and i feel like you know i have that amazing base of sport i have that amazing 
top-notch bike beneath me um, of the the foundation that was set up through sport. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really I was thinking about it and I was like, I want girls in sport to have a shortcut to, to this. You know, it took me 15 years of being an athlete in two sports. Um, it took me a life-threatening accident and then a, psych, a PhD in psychology to, to sort of bring this all together but mm-hmm. I feel like this is a shortcut for for athletes you know this this is everything that I wanted to know at the beginning of my this is everything I would have liked to know at the beginning of my yeah. elite elite journey and and also it it is everything I want young athletes to know who don't go all the way to the Olympics or world championships you know I want them to to realize what sport gives them Yes. So, so what do you offer? What um, what does She Thrives in Sport offer to athletes? Well, we we're starting small. Like I said, we we've just gone live in the last few weeks with my signature course, which is the I Thrive course for for mm-hmm. female athletes. Um, there's also I do coaching. I do remote coaching, and um, <clears throat> and then I guess as soon as it. It, it is safe to gather, you know, I will, uh, I have also put myself out there as, um, you know, speaking, workshops, presentations, that sort of thing. Excellent. Which, which I have done a lot in, in my, in my life, but never under the guise of specifically She Thrives in Sport for mm-hmm, female mm-hmm. athletes. So, um, and then I'm currently work, working on a course for coaches of female athletes um, which ah, interesting yeah well well you'd be surprised how many people come up to me especially here in in America and they say oh you you used to be an athlete oh you know um I coach my daughter's softball team can you tell me how to coach girls or tell me how to coach women or you know like it's amazing how many people have asked me as a female athlete how to coach girls and it's like Oh, surely it's not that much different. And then I looked into it and it was like, yeah, yes. it's actually, you know, it's just a different style. And it was, I've written it for my coach of um, of 10 years, Adrian David, my big, Rom- like <laughs> he's a big Romanian guy. And, um, and a lot of this stuff I would have wanted him to know. Well, I'm just going to digress a little bit because when I was reading, um, doing some background reading before I spoke to you today, I had a look at some scientific journals and I read one article I read was um, called Factors Affecting the Coaching of Elite Women Athletes. And one of the things it mentions is that that most elite sport coaches are men. So I think it's a ratio of 10 men to one women. And because of that, most women end up being coached by a male. Mm. And given that, you know, a male coach has often been an elite athlete himself, he draws on his own experience that are very male-centric experiences, and therefore he can lack an understanding of any specific issues that face women. And the other problem is that it can hamper the movement towards gender equality in sport because it's just not something that's really on their agenda. So just in from your own personal experience, do you think that women being coached by men, there are some issues there? Well, I, th- I think um, 
it's just, I mean, in general. Yeah, of course, everything's in general. And I, mm. I'm i like, my mum will tell you that I'm the last person that wants to admit to any difference between genders or whatever. But but we, oh, we can be equal without being the same. So um, yeah. I think we've got slightly different styles. Women are brought up a certain way with certain expectations. Men are brought up a different way. You know, we definitely treat our sons and daughters differently and that results in different, like, thinking processes and, and that mm. sort of thing as, as they become like a, an adolescent and beyond athlete. So um, there are definitely things that uh, females respond to differently to, to male athletes. Um, yeah, so <laughs> a, a lot of it yeah, is it, just it, reinforcing that. And it's, it's not... Um, we're not talking about it, whether it's a positive or negative thing, you know, a difference between men and women. It's simply acknowledging that they're different and may respond in different ways. And clearly there's a need for it because you've already just on an anecdotal level said that women have come up to you and said, how do I coach girls? So well, it, it's well, good they, that... they were mainly the blokes that came up and, and asked I me. see. But, um, well, at least they're interested. Yes, well, I congratulate them for wanting to mm. find out more. And and this is the whole idea. I, I guess this is one of the, the things behind Sheath Rides in Sport is that when, you know, like I said late last year when I was um, thinking, you know, I might actually enter the world of sports psychology, which I was always in denial that I was interested in, but I actually, <laughs> actually kind of am. And, um, and I was, I did a bunch of research. And since then I have also just poked around on the internet and found out what, you know, when you do a search for sports psychology and women or female athletes, that it comes up to how to coach female athletes. It is directed at the male coach and it is how to coach female athletes. And it's a number of like ideas that some I agree with, some I don't. But any mm-hmm. anyway, that was the only thing popping up. Every like with female athletes were being spoken about but not spoken to. Yeah. And, and so that's why, like, it was important for me for my, my signature course to be the first one live. That is the, the one speaking to female athletes. We're talking psychology, sports psychology for performance, resilience and well-being in sport, But we and we're talking to female athletes. We're not talking about them. That's excellent because for um, an elite sports person, um, or a musician for that matter, there's a lot more than just raw talent. There's commitment, drive, determination, and the right state of mind. And you're mentioning that you're talking to women about that. So how important do you think is the psychological aspect of elite sport? Oh, well, it's the it's a, it's a big factor. It's a decisive factor. Of course I would say that because, you know, here I am. Um, this is where I've come from, but I um, I would refer anyone who's interested to Angela Duckworth's work. She does amazing work on grit, and through her, and grit mm. is sort of the the concept of you know mental toughness in sport or yeah. um, persistence, determination, passion, and perseverance, and um, and she has through her studies, she's massive well-run studies on how much 
of success is actually explained by grit um, versus, and, and it is huge, you know. You, you yeah, I, I'm not surprised to hear that. I think it's an absolutely fascinating area. I remember when I was 16, I was a ball girl at the SA Men's Open and the, the then Rio um, Open, and to practice, we um, practiced doing our ball person skills in all the um, qualifying matches. And I was utterly blown away by how many people were out there who had devoted their entire life to tennis. A lot of them, you know, slept in their cars to afford to go to all the different matches and, and tournaments. And I think some of them maybe had the technical skill or whatever, but perhaps they lacked that mental toughness, you know, the kind of toughness you see in players like um, Federer and Nadal where they can just block everything out and focus on that moment. It must be so important. Yes, it will. Like I said, it was a, it's a decisive factor. And I've, mm. I've seen it work both ways in athletes, you know, um, having reasonably long career like I did I saw a lot of um, athletes who were super talented they were part of the talent identification program and you know they had money pumped into them they had the long limbs you know they were meant to they were meant to succeed that you know their the, the measurements the physiological yeah. measurements so said so on paper on paper mm. but they don't they don't do any psychometrics to to judge whether you know an athlete has the x factor you know or has the grit and yeah. um, and you know many of these talented talented athletes these talent id athletes i saw just come and go they showed promise and then they just didn't have it when it counted but i also saw some athletes who were not rated as highly physiologically you know they didn't have as big a um, vo2 max they didn't have as longer femurs or whatever the measure was Mm -hmm. but they had amazing amounts of passion and discipline and perseverance and they made it yeah yeah in fact i read a really good book about that by matt fitzgerald called how bad do you want it and he does go into some of that that kind of thing where he talks about people that you know based on their physical characteristics shouldn't make it as a rower or a cyclist but they do Mm. because as you say they've got that grit that passion that determination so it is uh it's decisive what do you think are some of the things that are specific to women and girls like are there any things that you need to work on with them that uh, are important do you think for for girls I um you, you know there there is the when you look at the statistics obviously things like um body image and energy intake mm. are big things for female athletes they are also big things for male athletes um and where female athletes might feel the pressure of being um you know having to perform in sport and have the body that gives them that performance and they sort of have to balance that with looking feminine or feeling feminine or uh, it, it, it's um it is also rearing its head for male athletes as well mm. although male athletes like 
when you know be, being muscly and being strong tends to fit the the idea of being masculine as well so we, we've got some work to do there that that's some that's some society-wide issues there are some movements you know body image acceptance movements and um i i interviewed a, a woman who runs sort of bushwalking courses for girls it's called strong daughters so the focus is on strength and resilience uh, rather than you know the physical body image which is good i'm just so pleased to see so many muscly bods on women like on instagram you know i follow um i think it's something like a female athlete or women in sport or whatever and there's so many amazing bodies that are athletic and strong and they're of women um and they're proud they're proud yeah which is what i I learned in my 15 years of being an elite athlete, you know, eventually, I think it was, you know, year seven or something, I I became proud of my biceps. Excellent. That's very good to hear. I like stories like that. One thing that I'm personally quite interested in is choking, uh, which is also part of the psychological aspect of sport. And uh, there are, I mean, academics kind of debate the actual definition, but most people know what it is. It's when you don't sort of reach your potential under perceived pressure. So are there some ways that people can deal with that in sport? Yes. Well, there we, we do address many ways in, um, in my course, for example. And I sort of take the foundational view that if, if the foundation is right, if you have a strong bike beneath you, then, um, you know, normally it, it affects the, the pointy end where choking becomes a, a thing or not. Um, we, so we address the foundation and we also address mm-hmm. things like visualisation and physiological arousal and um, this, this is all part of a chapter in, in my course called Insight, mm-hmm. which, which is about, you know, getting to know yourself and getting to know your body, being aware of your activation, uh, knowing how to manage it, um, visualising things so that you're not so anxious leading up to competition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of that helps with that pointy end where choking yeah. might occur. So in other words, if you have the right support, it's something that can hopefully be overcome? If you have the right support, anything can be overcome. But, um, but yeah, if you have the right foundational skills and then some specific skills as we come up towards the, the sort of more specialised pointier end of the, the pyramid, um, then that's, the, uh, that's my pathway to addressing mm-hmm. things like choking. For people that are interested then in working with you, how do they do that? Well, they can go check out what we offer at the moment at um, mm-hmm. at uh, shethrivesinsport.com. You can email. I've got um, I've got an Instagram account that is up and running. I have She Thrives in Sport on Insta- on uh, LinkedIn, and um, so they can follow me a few different ways there. Um, they can look at the curriculum that I have in in yep. the she Thr- in the I Thrive course for female athletes, mm-hmm. and very soon there, there is a little bit of information up there on um, on the 
my athlete thrives course for coaches and my do- my daughter thrives which is a course for parents that I'm also working on so um, that's a great idea I think well I I feel like it fills a gap and yeah absolutely um you know w- women have not been spoken to or addressed in in the world of sports psychology and so um, with this I really want to reach out to them. You know what's really great about that is that I think parents are kind of often the unsung heroes in this because for sports like rowing you know before you have your license and the kids need to be at (laughs) Westlakes at six o'clock in the morning if their parents didn't drive them there they they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess parents also need to have some skills to manage the ups and downs, the disappointments, the wins, the um, the sleep, the feeding the athlete, all those things. And I think, as you say, women, it's often the mother doing this, they're not really spoken to. So it's, it's great to hear that you've got a, a course designed for athletes' parents. Yes, and, you know, I will... I will absolutely both. I will speak to both the the father and the mother in the parents' course, but mm. um, but you know, really, they it's the first time that somebody's really spoken about understanding of a, an athlete as a daughter rather than a son. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Because also, swimming swimming's another sport that comes to mind where parents are sacrificing a lot for their kids to excel in that sport. Yes, I think one of the happiest moments of my parents' life was when my big sister got her licence and we were rowing in the first eight <laughs> together. So that was that Perfect. was pretty good for them, yeah. Yeah, even without having elite um, athletes in my family, I was happy when my son got his licence. <laughs> It's a good day. <laughs> you said your course is online, so therefore, even though you're based in Utah at the moment, you can work with people from anywhere. Is that right? Yes. To, generally, in Australia, the athletes um, they it, it's an early morning call for them mm-hmm. um, because yeah, it is it, my evening here is your morning there, and then yes, your afternoon is my middle of the night. So, but we can we. We have found ways to to speak over Zoom or um, Google Chat or whatever, and and um, and so I I have these um, coaching sessions. I'd sort of bundled them together as three coaching mm-hmm. sessions, and I'm not a psychologist, so they are definitely not like mental health consultations. But I I just aim to um, to find and bring to the fore. And an athlete's strengths, and maybe suggest a few things about challenges or weaknesses that they have, um, and give them confidence. I, I think. Oh, that go, sounds amazing. Going back to what you we were we were talking about, you know, one of the main things with female athletes, and and I spoke about body image and eating stuff, but I also think another major thing is confidence. The the way yeah. that we think of confidence the way that we display confidence might be different to you know what we see on the movies which is mostly you know if you think of a a sporting story that's a movie it's usually a 
a guy and it's usually Hollywood, Hollywoodified yeah. and, and you know, so we have to sort of rethink our um, concept of, of confidence and, and that determines how we get it. Well, you are definitely doing some excellent things for elite women in sport, so that is wonderful. So, Amber, I'll um, come to my final question now, which I like to ask all my guests. If you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Well, I think the first one's not a surprise, and that's physical activity. Phys- yeah. Physical activity for me is huge. Um, and I've seen some some research saying that it's basically equivalent to pharmacological intervention uh, for things like depression or lo- low level yeah. depression. Um, and so I and and I personally feel much better after I've gone for a ride in the in the mountains and physical activity for me, especially outside or with other people, is amazingly um, rejuvenating. And, yeah. um, and of course, um, athletes, they don't really have that problem of like too little physical activity. So what they should do is go to my site, do you go to She Thrives in Sport and look up the Swift, um, the, yes. the little, the, the little Swift um, tab at the top. And that's my way of um, categorizing the important things for them, for their well-being. So just- Quickly tell us what SWIFT stands for. <laughs> okay, well, it's going to have to be super quick. But um, SWIFT is skills, willpower, insight, fun and teamwork. And these are, you know, five categories of well-being, resilience and performance concepts that I think are, suit. you know, they are form formulated for an athlete. Like, um, you know, there are lots of well-being frameworks out there Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them, you know, rightly so, pointing out physical activity as a, a major thing contributing to your well-being. And but athletes sort of have that one done and dusted. They have so, it covered. Yeah. So th- this is a framework for resilience, performance, and well-being that is for them. Oh, excellent. And now back to your second recommendation for well-being. Well, second rem- the actually in my studies and in my experience, the most powerful thing for me has been gratitude. Um, uh, I mean, and when you think about it, it works on like several levels. It works on the emotional level in that it gives you the, it gets you in the feelies, as my friend would say, gets you in the feelies when you give it. Um, Mm -hmm. and it works on a cognitive level in that it helps you reframe things. Like, um, when I was, uh, you know, getting over my accident, I, I used gratitude to help me reframe things and go, well, no, actually I'm really grateful that my accident was at home with my family in the Australian health system. I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, I've I've only come out of it with a gammy eye and a gammy leg. You know, I could have it could have been much worse. Um, I can work, I can talk, I can ride a bike, I can drive a car. So that 
to me, being grateful for those things helped me reframe mm-hmm. that accident. And also it, it works on the uh, on a relational level. So I can't imagine that it would ever not improve a relationship or not, um, yeah. not strengthen a relationship when you show your gratitude. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really lovely way to end this podcast. So um, I will put a link to She Thrives in Sport and your Instagram account and everything in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Amber. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you very much for having me. That was the remarkable and resilient Dr. Amber Halliday. I'll put links to She Thrives in Sport and all Amber's socials in the show notes. Thank you for listening to my podcast today. I do hope you enjoyed it and that you found something maybe interesting or inspirational in my chat with Amber. You can subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast app including iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility, it helps people find my podcast, and it will inspire me to keep finding interesting guests in the wellbeing space to interview. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.